We are in week number two of the I Am series, okay? And uh, this, this installment is called I Am the Bread of Life. So I want to talk about food today. How many of you, how many of you like food? Yeah. Any breadaholics here? Oh, yeah, yeah. People talk about giving up sweets. I could give up sweets. I can't give up bread. Anybody else with that? You go in a restaurant. You had this happen? Go in a restaurant. As you're ordering, they're placing before you. And I, I told a, a, a wait staff once, after we ordered our, our dinner, there were uh, breadsticks there. I said, this is why I come here. It's just, it's just the bread. I don't care what the meal is. I come here for the bread. And my wife will say, you know, they've taken all the nutritional value out of it and sucked it all out, and then they add back in a few things to make it, they call it enriched, but it's really not, my wife's a nutrition, she's a family consumer science major, so she's got all this nutrition background. She's telling me the whole science to what's wrong with the breadstick I'm about to eat, and I said, honey, that's why we dip it in the olive oil. <laughs> that's why we put butter on it, okay? So, I'm not as dumb as you think I am. There's whole wheat bread, 12 grain bread, just clap at your favorite, okay? Spelt bread, unleavened bread, the French gave to us baguettes, right? Uh, maluga is a pizza-like bread from Yemen, a rice bread from Japan, bagels from Eastern Europe, ooh, ciabatta, right? Focaccia from Italy. Injera gave to us flatbread. Uh, injera is the bread comes from Eritrea, in Ethiopia. It's another flatbread. It's really actually like a, almost like a cracker. It's really good. Um, the U.S. gave to us Johnny Cakes. What in the world is that? You know, Johnny Cakes. And my, uh, but the bread I want to talk about that is from Germany. It's, it's called Stolen. Have you ever heard of Stolen bread? I actually, when I was a kid, I thought that's stolen bread. It's like anything, anything, any food that's stolen tastes better, doesn't it? It's just stolen. You actually buy it. Then I found out, oh, no, that's the German word for really a a bread that has fruits, dried fruits and nuts in it, kind of like we think of, you know, the, the, the bread that you get from grandma, the fruitcake that you never eat, it becomes like a doorstop because it weighs like seven pounds. That's, that's the bread. When Jesus begins to describe himself, he will say, I'm the bread of life. Interesting. But when he says that, literally pun intended, he says a mouthful. Because what happens here, when he says, I'm the bread of life, they knew exactly, because there's a lot of history to the bread. When we say bread today, it's not anything like the biblical day bread. Most of the nutritional value in bread today is, is taken out, unless you buy sprouted breads, or unless you raise your own and grind your own. It's just, it's, you're eating basically stuffing. It's not as nutritional as what biblical bread would have been. When Elijah in 1 Kings fell asleep under the juniper tree, the Lord brought to him hot cakes baked on hot coals. Leviticus Old Testament law tells us about unleavened bread. It was a principal food of the Middle East. And when people said they had bread or they broke bread, that, meant, that was a, symbolic for a whole meal. And there was the nutritional value sometimes in the bread itself and escaping from Egypt in North Africa God's people as they headed towards the Holy Land God gave them every day gave them uh, manna 
which is an Old Testament word for a, nu- a very nutritional kind of bread. It was a bread from heaven. So breaking bread meant not only having a meal, but it meant you had all the nutritional value that you needed as well because oftentimes that bread would have barley and oats and wheat in it combined with fruits and nuts. And so it was a whole, whole grains were in there. It would be a whole protein by the time you're done. And sometimes they even packed in beans or any kind of legume inside of that, particularly in North Africa. They would pack uh, legumes in it and it would become a complete protein. You didn't have to have meat if you had this kind of bread. So it was a whole meal. Um, additionally, there are, there are some scholars that even tell us that in biblical days there were, there were places that took bread and folded meat, cooked meat and cheeses into the bread. And so when Jesus would bow his uh, head and he would say, Our Father, this is how we pray, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he would say, Give us this day our daily bread. I find it interesting. Um, have you ever had bread that never expires? Anybody? Don't raise your hand. That's not anything to be proud of. I mean, food should expire, shouldn't it? If it doesn't, that means it's not going to break down in your system either. If it doesn't break down in, uh, in the cabinet or in your, in your drawer. When he says, give us this day our daily bread, I, I go back and realize they made bread every day. Every day. Uh, in biblical days, they had a little oven. It was communal, actually. And it was like a beehive-shaped uh, furnace. And they would bake bread on that. And they actually had professional bakers. You could come bring your dough and just drop it off, come back an hour later. They were constantly baking bread because they wanted to get the temperature just right, let it raise a while, get, get to this stone kind of quarry uh, bit of a furnace that would be in town. Every day, they made bread. Wouldn't that be great? You think about it. Just every day, fresh bread, every day. Well, the reason they did that is because they didn't have any preservatives. They didn't preserve things. Every day, so when Jesus said, give us this day, it was just for the day, that bread. Genesis and Ruth refer to breads as well and the symbolic provision from the Lord. Um, The custom included uh, not just uh, that beehive kind of uh, stacked furnace, but it also... Uh, included a, a bits of custom because there'd be professional bakers around. It became kind of the one of the one of the places in town where people would congregate would go because everybody eventually in their time of day in, during the time of day eventually everybody would get there to make their bread. It's just what they did. So it's no wonder that within our verbiage we have phrases like bread of sorrows or bread of wickedness. Uh, the bread of sorrows, it's the life of sorrows. Uh, the bread of wickedness is just, you know, it's like saying to someone, be sure your sins will find you out. You, that will happen. But even today, we say it. A person walks up to me and says, I need to get a job. I need to make some bread. They're not making bread. They're, they're making money so they can get bread, which means so they can eat. The symbolism is really big. And there are really three pictures to this, or three kind of clarifications. One is provision, the second is nutrition, the third is satisfaction. First, provision. Bread in the Bible meant not just something to eat, but it was something that was always at the table. Um, My uh, 
both sets of my grandparents were uh, steel mill workers, and I had one, one grandfather that started his life as a coal miner and moved up, you know, when industrialization came to being a steel mill worker. Uh, that was life for them. That was big life. But what you have to understand is they came from that Depression era, and so what they did was they had, they had a table of food, and they were grateful because they had jobs. But if you didn't get enough at the table... My grandparents always had, and your grandparents maybe the same way, always had a plate of bread off to the side. And, and if you didn't like whatever was at the table or you didn't get enough, you'd fill up the holes in your life with that bread. It was just what you did. And my grandfather would clean his plate. He'd eat the whole meal and then take a piece of bread and then mop it up. And then my grandmother would yell at my grandfather, what kind of example are you setting for the children? And then my grandfather would smile and wink his eye at me and then turn off his hearing aid. (laughs) (laughs) And that's my memory of bread at every table, which is part of the custom. And and you think of it, for me that's Americana. It's almost like a Norman Rockwell painting for me. But it goes back to biblical days. It was provision. It was at every table, every meal. And sometimes it was the meal. Most of the time it was the meal. And it wasn't just provision, it was nutrition because it was so packed with nutrients. It was all you could want. It was, it was all you could need. It was a complete meal. If you ate bread, you ate a complete meal. And with it being a complete meal then, it was satisfying to you. It was balanced and it was a bit of everything. So you didn't need anything else and you found yourself being not just full, but being healthy, being satisfied. So John 6, when Jesus tells us, I am the bread of life, that's not just an educational statement. He is giving hundreds of years of their tradition with bread, and now our tradition with bread. But he doesn't say that to describe just in a fancy way who he is. He wants them to really believe, and that's really key. If you're taking notes, jot down John 20, verses 30 and 31, where, Jesus, where, where John would write about Jesus. Jesus did many other signs, but these are written, verse 31, that you will believe. See, the key isn't that just that you get a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of bread. No, the key is that you believe, that you take and you eat it, you take it in for all it's worth. Jesus did what he did, and, and John told what he saw, not just so you could be informed about Jesus or educated, but so that you would believe. The end product then is not just that you will have information. The end product then is that your life will be transformed because you believe. And John will tell the story with pictures. Um, Jesus, John John chapter 1, Jesus is born, but he calls it the word becoming flesh. That's a word picture. And he then he will tell the story with pictures. He'll go to a wedding and he'll change water to wine. It's, a, it's the first miracle recorded in scriptures. He'll explain himself again to Nicodemus and say, you must be born again, using another word picture. He'll meet a woman at the well and say, uh, you, I know your story, and she'll realize this is the Messiah. So he's beginning to explain who he is, and he'll begin to heal people. And by chapter 6, he'll be out teaching, and there'll be a little kid there, in the crowd of 5,000 adults, 5,000 men, which probably means 15, 20, 25,000 people are there. And, 
as he teaches, his closest comrades around him, called the disciples, they'll say, hey, the day's getting away from us. We don't have anything to eat. Let's send them away. And Jesus said, go find something for them to eat. And they said, there's 5,000 people here, 5,000 men, which means probably 15, 20, 25,000 people. We never can, we, we take a half year's wages. We'd never be able to pay for the food we need. And so they go find out who has food in the crowd. Well, everybody clamps down with their food except for this one little kid. He hands the food away. Everybody else is holding tight to their stuff because everybody has something in their pocket. He holds out five loaves, two fish. Jesus says, bring it to me. Let's feed the crowd. He begins to break the bread. And you've heard that phrase, breaking of the bread. They didn't really cut bread back then. That was considered bad. So they, they broke it with their hands. He broke the bread. He just keeps filling the baskets. There's 12 disciples. They go out with the 12 baskets. They keep feeding people. The basket's never empty. That's the miracle. They come back. The baskets are still full. It's a miracle. People love him. Why? Because they got a meal out of the deal. So Jesus goes to get away. They, they go to chase him. He walks on water, gets to the other side of a lake. When we catch up to him in the story, they say, hey, how did you get here and when? That's not the question. The question is, when can we get our next meal? We like this bread deal. We like what it does for us. Let's pick up the story. John chapter 6, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Notice, he's not answering the question. Very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. He doesn't answer their question, when did you get here? He goes right for their heart. You just want another meal. And it begs the motive for you and me, what's the motive for us following Jesus? Is it the next meal? Is it the next gig that he does, seeing the next miraculous thing? Or is it because he is the bread of life? Is it because he offers eternal life? Verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they ask him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Here, he says, this is the big idea, people. Believe in the one he has sent. Get that. Believe in the one he has sent. The greatest thing you can do today and any day is believe in Jesus. Trust him. The whole idea of the book, John 20, verses 30 and 31, the whole idea of the book is that you will believe him, that you'll trust him. The stories, the miracles, the conversations, those are all there and they're good. But do you ever notice this? Jesus did not heal everybody. He didn't fix every problem. He didn't overthrow governments. He didn't set up educational systems. He didn't start a health care plan. He didn't do any of that. Why? Because that would all come and go. What's the one thing he wants you to do? He just, he just says this. This is the work. Believe me. So they ask him, verse 30, what sign then will you give us that we may believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. They're referring now to the Old Testament, the escape from Egypt, and as it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Referring to that manna that fell, verse 32, and Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father, get that, who gives it to you. What's he doing? He's tying himself to God in heaven. He is telling them, I am deity. Hope you get this. He could be killed for that. He could be killed for that. 
He's saying, very truly, it's not Moses who gave you that bread. It's the Father, and he is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread, verse 33, from God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You see, we need a sign, they're saying. Give us a sign. Our ancestors had bread in the wilderness. Give us a sign. They're asking for more bread. He says, I'll give you bread. It won't be any kind of bread that you would imagine. Now stop there for a moment. There's even a play of words that you can't see in the script here because our English kind of just melts it together. When it talks about bread, we understand that. But when it talks about life, there's actually three ancient terms for life. There's the word zoe, Z-O-E, and we get our word zoology from it, okay? There's the word bios, we get our word biology. And there's the word psyche, or psych, and we get our word psychology from that. Zoe, zoology, is life, and it's, it is life in, in a transcendent form. In other words, it, it's not just the study of the animal. We think of zoology as the study of the animal world, and it is. But in their term, it was even larger. It was the meaning of life, the principle of life, the concept of life. It was the largest term of life. And then there's this other term, bios, biology. When they talked about life, they talked about the biology of life, which meant the start of life, the organization of life. And it, it dealt more in terms with what's happening internally in the body. It's interesting, when the followers of Jesus would ask him questions, they asked him bios questions, you know how he responded? He didn't respond with psyche, which is personality. He responded with Zoe. He's saying, they ask, uh, what kind of life, bios, what kind of biology is this? And he's saying, y you're not getting it. It's Zoe. It's the next level of life. It's way beyond. It'd be like you, uh, you'd be being somewhere, and you're saying, I I'm hungry. We're traveling somewhere. And you say, let's pull over and get a snack. And instead of pulling over to get a snack, we eat a feast. You see the difference? He's saying, they're asking, can we have a snack? He's saying, I'm going to give you the feast. It doesn't come across in the English very well, but the idea is this. What Jesus has to offer is way more than what these people are even asking. And the epistles will prove that to be consistently the truth. You want life? He says, I can give you life. Life way beyond any dimension you can imagine. He's saying, very truly, I'm telling you, Moses didn't give you that bread. My father gave it to you. The bread that comes from down from heaven gives life to the world. Zoe kind of life, a zoology. It's, it is a huge kind of life. And they respond, verse 34, always give us this bread. They're just saying, sir, you, we, that's what we desperately need. Then Jesus declared to them, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me, get this, you will never grow hungry. In other words, you'll always be satisfied. You'll always be filled. Whoever believes me will never go thirsty. You will never have a, a want for anything if you'll just come to me. I will be your satisfaction. I will be your provision. I'll be your nutrition. I will be your satisfaction. You will feel full. You'll feel satisfied. That's the, that is what Jesus has to offer. They're asking for a snack. He's saying, I can fix you for a lifetime. He says, I am your source for life, your provision. I am your nutrition. I am all the value, all the good things of life. And it's more than just stuffing at this point. 
I am the nutrition that you need for the energy that you need in life. And I will be the satisfaction. I'll be the sense that your life is full. There'll be no reason to look anywhere else. Here's the deal. <clears throat> you will run from one thing to another, hoping it will eventually satisfy. And it doesn't. And we do that with restaurants. We do that with shoe shops. We do that with car dealers. We do that with jobs. We do that with spouses. We do that with houses. We just think the next one will be the best one. But nothing satisfies. And what Jesus is saying is this. I will be your satisfaction. But you have to trust me. You have to trust me. But as I tell you, verse 36, you have seen me and you still do not believe. Let me stop there. <clears throat> Sometimes people will say to me, I have a mom or dad or I have a son or daughter and I, you're really good at explaining spiritual things. If you'll just come over to the house, explain it to I'm sure they'll follow Jesus. And you know what I say? I would be happy to do what I can do, but I can't save people. Can't, I've never have been able to say people can. But there are people who saw Jesus. <laughs> Did you get this verse? And they didn't believe. They turned away. So don't think that some persuasive argument is going to make the measurable difference. It, it may not happen. That's not happy news. But it's the truth. Now back to the text. Some see and still do not believe. Verse 36, 37 now. All those the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Get this? I want them to come. When they come, I will always accept them. Get, get this. If you get nothing else from the message. You may be hesitant to trust the Lord because you're, not, you're afraid he's not going to take me. He says, I will not turn you away. Peter says, he wants us to come to him. Hebrews says, I will not, he will not let you down. He will never forsake you. I, I, I mean, there's just three of, of the promises right there. He says, I'm not going to drive you away. So you may be saying, I stand at the door at a distance from Jesus. I want to trust him, but I'm not sure he'll take me. And by his own words, these aren't my words, these are Jesus' words. He's saying, I will never turn you away. I'll never drive you away. So his acceptance for you is 100%. The issue is you just have to come. Now verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Get this. He's saying, stop there. He's saying, I, I come down from heaven. So he's telling the people now, and this is almost blasphemous. This is hard. It, it, gets, it gets right past us. But he's saying, I come down from heaven. He's saying, I existed prior to my birth. He's saying, I am eternal. I am deity. And I come down under the command of the Father who's in heaven. I am the Father's son. That really ticks off the religious people of the day because they don't want this system. They like the system they have. He is saying, I am deity. You and I have to come to terms with that. That Jesus is the way, not only to heaven, but to the Father. He is the only way. Verse 38, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none that he has given me, 
but will raise them up in the last day. Get this, I will lose none of them. Some of us have loved ones that we know trust Christ and we know they follow the Lord, but they don't, they don't always track like they should. In fact, they wander and then they follow the Lord again and they stop and then they follow the Lord again. And here's the deal. They may lose their way, but what's Jesus saying? Jesus never loses track of them. Some of us in the room, do not raise your hand, some of us in the room have trackers on our kids, don't we? I mean, I, I thought my third grade teacher, Mrs. Barnhart, had eyes in the back of her head. Anybody else have a teacher like that? Third grade. Um, you just you have people that just track you, who know who you are and where you are and what you're up to. Get this. Jesus says, when you're tracking with me, you may lose your way. I will never lose track of you. Which tells me something about the message of eternal security. It doesn't depend on me hanging on to Jesus. It has everything to do with Jesus hanging on to me. And his hand is strong. And then in another passage he says, and he says, and my hand, he says, you're in my hand, is inside the hand of the Father. So nothing's going to get you away. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. So it's very comforting for us who have parents or kids or family members or coworkers who follow Jesus and then seem to lose track and then gain traction again and then lose track again. Trust me, the Lord says, I know who they are and I know where they are. For the fathers, verse 40, for my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Get that. Not just to look to him, but believes in him. Not just admires him from a distance, but believes in him. Not just sees him as a good role model, a good person in life, but believes in him. He says, that's who is mine. And he says, and I'll raise him up at the last day. The real issue is one of belief. And the sad news is this. I can't save him. You can't save him. There's no convincing argument that's going to save him. Sometimes we just think, if I could just get him to a Billy Graham crusade, right? If I could just get him to summer camp, if I could just get him to attend this church. And, and we get a little paranoid that way ourselves. I mean, we just, we want, we want a clean parking lot. We want well-lit entrances. We want great music and phenomenal children's programming. We want everything to run smoothly. We don't, certainly don't want dead space and a mic and we don't want people to lose their way. We don't we want the words to match what you're supposed to sing. You don't we want the wrong song up there. And frankly, I, I keep asking Ernest, I need the song to have that bouncing ball so I know what word to sing when you repeat. You know, go back to the bouncing ball. And Ernest says to me, you just tell me that to make me think that you can read. That's what he says. We all want to do the best we can, Right? But that's for the glory of God. We don't want to do that for the glory of God. But we can't think, oh, that's going to change their heart. The Father will call them. They need to respond and believe. And he says, and those are mine, I'll raise them. And, and this is my Father's will, verse 40, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes, they will have eternal life. You, you do have it. So five questions, here they are. 
first question is the question of identity. Who do I believe Jesus to be? These are questions to take home, ponder. Jesus' claim is strong. His claim is to be the bread of life. He's, he's essentially saying, I am God. That is offensive, particularly in a pluralistic society where you just find your own truth and measure up to it. I was in a public place. Some people did some stuff that was just plain wrong. I saw a guy. He could not say that's wrong. You know what he said? Some people have their own way of doing things. That's the best he could do right there. You know, and the preacher in me goes, that was wrong. That was wrong. He should be at the end of the line. You should make him back, go back to go, no, no $200, go to jail. You know, just in monopoly terms. Who do I believe Jesus to be? It's almost offensive to realize there is a right and wrong. Jesus is saying who he is, and they have their own idea, their own system. Jesus messes it all up. And our society does that too. We make him to be whatever we want him to be. He's a place of imagination in our minds. But in reality, he is a real person in history. And he's telling us he is deity. Even subtly, he's telling us he came from heaven. He's pre-existing. Even prior to his earthly visit, we cannot reduce him to being a created being because he predates creation. He says, I am. He uses this eternally great one theme, and he does it seven times in the gospel. He's telling us he's deity. The real issue is that of identity. Who do I believe Jesus to be? Second question is the issue of need. What do I want from a Savior? What do I really need from a Savior? Do we even need the Savior? He offers eternal life. We sing, Lord, I come to you. Oh, I need thee. I, that, it, it's hard to help a person get on the right track when they don't realize they're off. See, and that's one of the lies of Satan is to get you to keep from coming to Christ. He'll even tell you, well, there is no right or wrong track. The Bible's really clear. There's a way that leads to sin and death. But there's a way of eternal life. You have to pick. Do you want just a savior that just someone that you admire or a hero, or do you desperately need the savior of the world? And again, that's offensive. So you have to ask yourself, what is the level of need? Am I adding just a little bit of Jesus to my life, or is he, get this from the, I am the bread of life, is he my sustenance? Is he my provision? Do I trust him? Is he my satisfaction? If you will trust him, I, I, I tell you this, if you'll trust him, he will become your satisfaction. He will become your sustenance. He will be your provider. But first, you have to do the job of believing him. There's a third question, and it's why. It's really the question of motive. Why do I follow him? If you follow the storyline, Jesus did a miracle, people followed. because, Of course they did, because they got a free lunch out of it. But when he taught and challenged the crowd, they began to walk. And the crowd got down pretty small. And then he looked at the, that little group and said, do you want to leave too? In other words, people are in it for the popularity, but Jesus was not. If you're in this for what Jesus has to offer, 
you'll end up walking away eventually because there'll be a day that Jesus doesn't offer or Jesus doesn't come through or Jesus doesn't answer your prayer. Americans are particularly spoiled in this manner in that our loyalty is based upon what did Jesus do for me last week? And, and if you don't believe me, just look, watch any pro sport when an athlete peaks, what do we do? We sell him off. We get rid of him. Move to another team. Why? Because we don't want that. The loyalty is, is gone. In fact, I was talking to a guy this week. I saw his three uh, teenage sons. One son had an Alabama shirt on. Another one had like a Green Bay Packers. Another one had a Cavaliers hat. And I mean, they were, it was a mixed marriage family. I mean, there was like three kids and five different sport loyalties in their clothing. I said, who do you really root for? And he said, you know what? He looked at me, he said, my, my kids don't really root for the teams. They only root for individual players. Uh, oh my gosh, is that ever an indication of our society? Oh yeah, he, he likes Golden State, but what he really likes is Stephen Curry. <laughs> so, and he's really not a Cavaliers fan. He's just a LeBron fan. Oh my word. And when LeBron twists his ankle, off he goes. See? See how disloyal we are? Even, and that's our culture. You have to ask yourself, how, how am I relating to Jesus? What's my motive? Why do I even follow? If our loyalty is related to the last miracle, that's a pretty thin line. It begs the question, do I really believe it, or am I just here for the free lunch? Am I here for the next miracle? The fourth question is the question of defense. Where do I go when I don't get the response that I want? This might be just the right question for the Sunday after Easter. <laughs> you know, it's just the Sunday after Easter, we settle in and say, okay, um, the hoopla's over now. How is this relationship with Jesus really work? And what is my default when, when I think Jesus didn't come through? Maybe he is coming through, but not the way I expected. Or do I really just have an exit plan if it doesn't work? And here's my word to you. If you'll trust him, you'll find him to be your satisfaction. You'll find your identity in him. But you'll find real satisfaction in him as well. So you, what you'll find is this. You don't need anything else. Because it's a complete meal. See, and that when he says, I am the bread, he's saying, I'm the complete meal. I'm all you need if you'll just trust me. So that's the issue of the defense. One more. It's the issue of loyalty. Do I ever give up? And if so, when? In Jesus' day, they just walked. It happens today, too. Loyalty's built more, disloyalty's built more into our culture than ever before. So you have to ask yourself this question. What, what am I in it for? When Jesus tells us, I am the bread of life, he's telling us, you have to, this is offensive, you have to be consumed by me. You have to be filled with me. You have, to, you have to want to eat me up, take me in. You have to really, really want me. 
Jesus is saying, I want to be your sustenance. I want to be your source. I want to be your satisfaction. Because anything else will always, always fall short. One of my favorite authors, uh, living authors, is a guy by the name of Francis Chan. Francis has written a number of really good books. I recommend anything he writes. Francis Chan is his name. He's been a pastor. He's an author. He's a conference speaker. But he tells this story just from a, a, about a year ago. He got to lead a chapel for the National Football League players at the end of a season. And that chapel service, he was able to open his Bible, and anybody could come from the NFL that wanted to come. So these were full, filled with players and some spouses. But he talked about this satisfaction issue in Jesus, the fact that you could trust him, and that in that, there was a real sense of satisfaction in him. And you'll not find that anywhere else. And Chan says to his surprise when he got done, he had players come up to him afterwards, and these are players with the big rings on who've won the big game, the Super Bowl. So these are not wannabes. These are guys who've won the game. And he said he can't even count the number, but, but more than one, several of them walked up and said, you know what? I thought this would be the pinnacle for me. I thought this would be the ultimate for me. And when we won the game, I went to the locker room and felt empty. One guy said to him, I felt empty at the end of it. And so I thought, well, when we get back to our hometown and I go to the parade, that'll be satisfying. He got to the parade and he said, is this all there is? And that's the Super Bowl, folks. You know what they're telling Chan? There is no satisfaction apart from knowing Christ. So when Jesus says to you and to me, I am the bread of life, he's saying, I want you to want me to be your sustenance, your provision, your satisfaction. And that means we desperately want to take him in, eat him up, take to heart what he says, and find the true life, not the bios life, but the true life, the Zoe kind of life, life eternal. Let's bow for prayer. So when you tell us, Father in heaven, that you love us with an everlasting kind of love, and then you demonstrate that love for us by giving to us Christ, I, I tell you, thank you for Christ who came to be Savior of the world. And I thank you that you do love us and you demonstrate that love. Now may we trust you. Uh, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I, I hadn't planned to do this, but I'm just going to make the offer, and if you want to pick up on it, you do it in your own seat right where you are. But I, I just wonder, there, there could be a person here who just says, you know what, I have been admiring Christ from a distance. I've never really gotten in the game. And now it's making sense. And I, I realize I am in desperate need of the Savior. And so, Jesus, for all that you are, I, I trust you. I trust you to be my Savior. Maybe you just open your heart right where you are. The words don't matter nearly like your heart. And you tell us, Lord, that 
all who come you will by no means cast away and cast aside. And for, for those who've come to Christ in, in days gone by, we keep coming because, Lord, you are the way, the truth, and the life. You're the door. You are the good shepherd for our soul. You are our bread. You are our energy, our sustenance. You are our uh, provision for life. We keep coming back and we find our satisfaction in you. May we not be caught up. Lord, keep us from being caught up in anything besides you. Keep us from being caught up in our identity in anything else besides you. In our goals, our drive, our motives, all of it. May it be all about you. And I pray this in the name of Christ, our risen Savior. And the church says, amen.